0: If there is one thing in basketball that drives me crazy, it's slow decisions. So it can be a wrong decision, I'm good with the wrong decisions, but slow decisions are killing me. Killing me and killing our team the way we want to play. So if the turnover comes from the quick decision, that means that you still gotta work on your decision making, but you are playing basketball the right way. If the turnover comes from making a slow decision, that is really, really bad.
1: Hi, I'm Dan Krikorian, and I'm Patrick Carney, and welcome to Slapping Glass, exploring basketball's best ideas, strategies, and coaches from around the world. Today, we're excited to welcome the head coach of Serbia's mega basket, Marco Barac. Coach Barac is here today to discuss how pick and roll aggression influences help and tag responsibilities, defending the short roll and we talk the art of Spanish pick and roll reads and offensive rebounding analytics during the always fun start, sub, or sit. The season is here, but we know that many coaches are already looking ahead at international trips in 2024 and 25. Ourselves, along with a number of former podcast guests, cannot say enough great things about our experiences working with Josh Erickson and his team at Beyond Sports. From handling flights, hotels, game scheduling, excursions, service learning opportunities, and more, Josh and his team provide unmatched service and support throughout the entire trip. To learn more about why more than 650 programs have trusted Beyond Sports, visit beyondsportstours.com and tell them Slopping Glass sent you. And now, please enjoy our conversation with Coach marco barrage coach it was great to meet you and get a chance to sit down and talk with you at the las vegas summer league and we really appreciate you coming back on the show today so good to see you again
0: great to see you guys again you know it was very good meeting you in vegas we had a big whiteboard and a couple of pens, you know and there's a basketball junkie did a couple of hours it was really really quick yeah
1: Absolutely. Yeah, quite a fun afternoon for us as well. We're excited to continue the conversation here today. So, thanks for coming back. We wanted to start with this and discuss something that we actually did talk about in Vegas that was really interesting for us. And that is basically pick and roll defense and your aggressiveness on the ball, how that affects what you do behind the ball as far as who's tagging your rotations and things like that, and all the considerations that you have when it comes to how much pressure you're going to put in the pick and roll. And so we'll start kind of broadly with your thoughts on how aggressive you want to be and then how that affects the rest of your defense.
0: It's one of the most important things, you know, being aggressive on the ball, picking up full court. You know, sometimes it's important because you are playing against the opponent that, let's say, doesn't have a good ball handler. In other situations, it's important because they have so great handler that you want to put pressure on him and make him tired but the most important is that doesn't matter what is the opponent and what are their characteristics being aggressive full court being aggressive on the ball it just brings the aggressiveness of the other four guys up it wakes everybody up and i've never seen a team that has one player you know who is giving his best dying over there and then the other guy's just letting the first pass go without any pressure it doesn't happen too often you know if you have a good group of guys if you set a tone with your on-ball defense, it brings the intensity of your entire defense up, and it helps your pick-and-roll defense, it helps your overall defense. When it comes to the specific pick-and-roll, I'm coaching a very, very young team last two years, and I found that playing hedge, you know, with all the rotations, is the Simple way of difference, most simple way of rotation. When you look at the game, maybe you couldn't say so because you see a lot of guys rotating, you know, it's some maybe rotations that are not easy to teach, that are not simple, you know. But in my opinion, it helps with responsibility. When you know all the time who is your low man, when you know all the time who is splitting the difference on the help side, who is playing between the two, if you know who is responsible for short roll, If you know who goes on the first pass, when you look at the game, it's a lot of rotation. Basically, it's just a lot of running. If you have good drills, if you have good fundamentals, good basics, in my opinion, it's the easiest way for a young team to play defense. For other kinds of defense, with other tags on the help side, you need one thing that I don't have right now, and that is experience. Maybe back in the days, I made a mistake, but... It didn't last long, thinking that playing defense is all about being aggressive and having the wish and the will to play. But I couldn't be more wrong. You gotta be smart. You gotta be talented for playing defense. You gotta be experienced. So, my opinion for other defenses that are maybe more simple in a sense of on ball and what is happening on that two against two, you know, more passive defenses you actually need more experience on the help side. So my tags over there are really simple. I always love to have the low man. He's responsible for everything that happens inside the paint, under the basket. He's got his rules where he picks up the big, how aggressive he is. Then I have the guy who is the X guy. He's playing between the two and he's taking the first pass out. Nothing too crazy. Everybody does that. And now we have the on ball which is sometimes different depending on individual characteristics, depending on the opponent. So as I heard from one of my colleagues that is also working with the young team, you know, bad hedge is way better than bad draw. Way better.
2: (laughs) Coach, talking about the hedge defense and the two on the ball, you mentioned sometimes it changes with a scout, but What are you asking in terms of your big who is hedging? Is it a two-step? Is it a show? The aggression of the hedge and the work between him and the
0: defender on ball. His job is more or less always the same in a way that what I demand from him. I want him to never let the opponent big have separation coming to the ball screen. So that's the most important thing. Being good position, just regular position, ball you, man. And then when the big is coming, starting his screen to set the ball screen, you got to connect. You gotta be connected, you gotta change your stance, come in his numbers, you gotta be there on time, you kept have your feet moving, you know. And then basically it's a two steps, and doing those two steps, you gotta read what the ball candler is doing. Is he picking the ball up? It's automatic coming back. Is he making a backup dribble like a defensive dribble? It's automatic coming back. Is he attacking your hips? Then wait, let him go all the way around you, and then recover. It's a bit complicated footwork. You need to have your bigs doing like lateral steps. And then most of the times you need them to do a little bit of backpedal, maybe one or two steps backpedaling to give space for their guards to cut off the ball handler if the ball handler is doing the backup dribble. So you need to drill it day by day. A lot of mistakes are happening when the bigs are not reading and when they are overextended. It happens for two reasons. First reason is if they are disconnected with a big and they still want to do the vertical show, which is impossible. And second is that they are not reading the ball handle. So they got to be able to do both things. And you got to drill it with dummy offense. You got to drill it against coaches. You got to drill it live. And it's a process. About the guard, I already mentioned how important being aggressive on the ball is. Now it comes to the ball screen. Obviously, when you have the big who is way up, waiting for the hedge, the reject becomes even more dangerous. So you are really responsible because there is no rim protector in the paint. You have the low man who can be the guard, who can be the wing, you know. So it's really important not to be rejected. And the second thing that is important is to have like a no screen mentality. We usually make mistakes as coaches coming to the preseason. We start immediately with the uh, coverages, with drills, with help side, you know, everything. And that loosen up the on-ball defenders. You send them a message from the very beginning that we are doing everything to protect them without them having the wish to make an effort. Usually I start the preseason, like first drill is we play pick-and-roll, but there is no coverage. You just tell him screen left or screen right. No. And you gotta have the no-screen mentality, you gotta fight, you gotta know which is the weakest point of every big man, and that is the area about their hips, you know. So you gotta jump on their hips, you gotta hit their hips, you gotta try to be physical, you gotta try to have that inside arm, you know, win the space between the screen and the ball handler. So with that kind of mentality, when we give you the help, is it the hedge, is it the flat, is it whatever, later on. It can make our two on two game really good defensive. So that's the first thing that we need from him. And the second thing is to know what they want from that ball screen. Usually, when the ball screen is more or less stationary, if we talk about the high pick and roll, the top pick and roll, you know, and we are hedging, everybody nowadays looks for the short roll. So if you see that they are not aggressive, or if you know based on the scouting that they have the pass first guard or the biggest. Very skilled playing of the short roll. You gotta try and plug it. Gotta try and jump on the big man. Is it gonna be under him being physical and then let him go when he goes close to the free throw area, or you will backpedal into him? You know, with aggressive hands, whatever. So you gotta know your player, know who you're playing against, know the spacing or what the offense wants, and you gotta try to plug the short roll in those situations when the pick and roll is more in a motion when it's more flying, when it's more in full speed, or based on the scouting, you know that we are playing against the great one-on-one guy, against the great pull-up shooter, and we don't want to give him any separation after the hedge. Then you got to try and cut him off, read what he's is doing. Is he backing up? Then you go very aggressive on him. Is he attacking the big man's hips, going around him? Then you go under our big, you know, and beat him to the spot. So those are 2 and 2 reasons that we need our guys to have. One more thing I didn't mention about the bigs. They gotta know and feel when they're late. When they're late coming up, when they're late for their coverage, they need to change. We don't want to overextend just because we want to hedge. You know, you gotta know that you're late and you will probably play some kind of flat, some kind of flat show. You still don't want to let the ball handler go inside the three-point area because it destroys our help side, which is ready for the catch, you know. So those are two-on-two two, reads.
2: When you know they're trying to play through the short roll and you want to plug the short roll, and you mentioned either going under the screen or kind of going over with back pedals, is that scout-specific? Is it kind of your personnel-specific? I mean, what is your decisions with how to plug the short roll?
0: It depends on the offensive bigs. You have different kind of screens against the hedge. Somebody likes to sleep it early. Somebody is not reading the defense and stays there too long. Somebody's playing with what I personally like is you got to touch the defender and then sleep. Because I don't know why, but a lot of defenders just when they get touched, they stand up and they are expecting some kind of help. So now I'm talking a little bit about the offense. But what I want to say is that depending of the angle, and the speed of the big coming out from the screen if he holds the screen you will go under him and be physical if he slips the screen you will try to connect with the back pedal
2: another thing you mentioned with the no screen mentality and we talked about this in Vegas when knowing the weakness of the big and attacking their hip and getting over the screen could you just follow up with a couple more thoughts on how you teach that and what you're telling your guards in terms
0: of attacking the screener's hip to get over so first thing is No reject. I already mentioned. Second thing, if you got to choose between being physical and having to fight with a guy that is your size and the guy that is way bigger and way taller than you, probably you choose the guy your size. So you cannot go there without fighting your guy. So you got to lock, you got to be physical, and you got to try to fight your guy. If you win that battle, probably you won't even need to fight with a big. That's the best option, you know. Now it happens that you didn't win that battle, and now you have to fight the big. It's a problem, right? If there is a fight that you just have to be a part of, then choose his weakest spot. You know, his weakest spot is probably hip area. The best bigs in the world of basketball have the strongest hips, so it doesn't work always, you know. But if there is somebody with a weak spot, then you really try. As I said, you lock your guy, you gotta try to be physical, if you can, then you lock and trail, and you try to put your inside hand between the ball handler and the screener. By putting your inside hand, you try to jump with your leg, to jump with your foot, and basically, you go with your shoulder, and with your hip, you go as hard as you can in his hips area. So, it's not the perfect battle that you like to fight, but... It's not the perfect world. So if you need, you try to be physical in that way.
1: Coach, I'd love to ask for a second about the other three defenders. We'll stay with the hedge right now. And assuming that you're hedging and that that big is either short rolling or long rolling. And who is, in your eyes, most important tag and like what the order of operations is, whether it's the first, the high eye, or like the higher guy in the tag, or you want to send all the way to the low tag. And just how you think about who's tagging a short roll or a long roll or when you're hedging and then how they kind of recover back?
0: We would like to make it as simple as possible. No, So that's the perfect question. As I said, for young guys, young teams, it's really important to not mix up responsibility. So for me, the easiest way to do that is having the low man that is always responsible for the roller. He's always responsible for the deep roll with, of course, the help of the Plugging the short roll, like we said before, he got to be very physical. He takes the roll man somewhere between the dots and the restricted area, the smiley. That is his area. He can't do it too low because it's a dunk. He can't do it too high because there is a lot of space behind his back to cover. And if there is a pass coming to the big, he got to try and steal it. He got to try and take the ball, take his hands, you know, anything. And then we have the other guy. Let's say we are talking about the top and roll with two players behind. Is the same as if with one player behind when you are hedging. We have the high guy on the help side, which is playing between the two. He takes the first pass out. That is really simple. It's important when the ball is in the air that we run. And like in every defense, every offense, everything comes back to fundamentals. You got to start running when the ball leaves the hand, you got to run and Don't close out on a guy that doesn't have the ball. When we are talking about the X rotation, run to your shrink, be ready to shrink the floor immediately to play the defense. More or less, that is simple. The problem starts when they do transfer the ball to the short roll. That is the hard part. When the short roll guys, like roll and kick, it's not that difficult. You already have the guy who is playing in X spot, so he takes the first pass out going from the big. On the second pass, it's kind of a read. Was the long man engaged by the big or not? If he was engaged, then probably the guy from the pick and roll will run on the second pass. If he was not engaged, it's a simple X rotation like we did before. Now, the most difficult rotation is, of course, the short roll and the backdoor cut. That is where a lot of teams have a lot of problems. For me, I take that backdoor like a drive. So, I tell to my ex-guy, to the guy who is playing between the two, imagine that that guy has the ball and he starts driving to the baseline. So you take him. You take him and play different. And now what we have, we have the guy who is sliding from the slot, who is sliding into the vision of the short-roll big, and usually it's a 45 open shot. It's usually what, what it ends up. So, it's a really difficult rotation, because now somebody from the pick roll coverage needs to run there and take and contest that shot. Depending who is closer, if we plug the short roll or we stay connected with the guard, it depends who takes the rotation. If the guard was plugging the short roll, he is closer to run over there. And he didn't do his job good, because they end up playing the short roll. If he was aggressive on the ball, and we have our big who is recovering from the pick and roll. He should recognize that there is a short roll, there is a backdoor drive, and instead of recovering to his guy, he should start running to the shoulder and contest. That's the way we do it. There are other ways without committing the guard who is playing between the two, committing him completely to the backdoor, maybe having the guy from the opposite side making the help or having the guy was taking the role just trying to come back you know and take but as i said i want to limit the gray areas and to limit the reads as much as possible having the young team today's
1: episode is brought to you by our friends at huddle and their latest product huddle instat whether for podcast prep newsletter ideas or putting together our weekly short and long form video breakdowns we rely heavily on huddle instat's advanced analytics an extensive content library containing over 460 U.S. and international competitions. For more information on Huddle Instat, visit huddle.com slash slapping glass today. Sort of zooming out for a second, and you mentioned having a young team, but I know you've coached teams in the past that maybe have a little more experience, and being able to mix up your coverages, and when you would think about hedging dropping, flat, you know, all the different things you can do within a game, especially against good guards that really know how to operate the different reads and when you might think about changing things up and going from there.
0: Really quickly, because everybody just so good in good European leagues, you know, you cannot play the same coverage for 40 minutes. It is impossible. So they will punish you sooner or later. For me, what I like doing is doing it based on a uh, personnel. I start the game not hedging on everyone when I have the team that is capable of doing it defensively. So you hedge on the guys that are extremely good players with a ball, you hedge on a two-man game that have very good connection, let's say on a lob game, you hedge in a, some period of time that you want the guy to pass the ball. On the others, there is no team that has six, seven great ball handlers. There is no need to hedge into be over-aggressive on the guys that are not capable scorers or that they don't have good chemistry with the big. So basically, for me, the best thing is to start the game based on the personnel knowing how you defend who. Other possibility is to have different coverages based on the location, and that's also based on the scouting of the opponent. And the thing that you got to do is having in-game adjustment. So if they're punishing you with quick passes, you know, probably you will have one or two defenses just turning it back to the soft hedge or the quick hedge, however you want to call it. Maybe you will steal one or two possessions that they are not aggressive enough because they are just passing the ball without being aggressive with the ball. So it's two possessions in this game. Three successful possessions are making the run. It's a lot.
2: As we start talking about now, maybe mixing up your defenses or getting away from the hedge. And at the very beginning, you said... As your defense has become a little bit more passive, you've found that you need more experience with your teams. So as you get more passive in your coverages, what begins to change that has you feeling experienced and begins to matter more and it's harder with younger
0: teams? You know, you've got a lot of gray areas and that's why you need experience. You know, now probably the high man will be more involved in a tagging. So when you are playing more passive defense, you want the front line of the defense being more involved is it coming to tag the pocket pass or if they're going towards the two-man side, you want to make more of a stunt and then what is the line of that stunt, you know, what is the level of your tag when you're tagging as a high man, then when it comes to the late switch, is it a dribble inside the paint, is it the communication of a big, is it communication of a guard, do you have a third man involved in a late switch situation, so there is a lot of, more advanced things that you got to have a little bit of experience when we talk about mixing up defenses i don't think we still understand as coaches the importance of switching defense and how we need to practice against it and how we need to do everything differently back in the days it was like holding the coach's clinic and i'm talking about the defense and i spend like 50 minutes from 60 talking about my coverage and then Last 10, I say, okay, we switch last 8 seconds or last 10, or I don't know. Talking about the offense, I would spend 50 minutes talking about the different spacing, different passing, you know, and then last 10 minutes, maybe I would say, okay, if they switch, we pass the ball down or we play ice or we play some kind of cooperation In the practice. We would spend hour and hour and fifty minutes practicing different coverages, and then last ten minutes just because of our conscience, we would do, okay, let's do a little bit against the switch. Nowadays it's completely different. We should start with a switching defense, playing against that offensively, selecting the teams that can punish that, practicing it defensively earlier with high intensity, you know, so it becomes really, really important and it's not the last thing. You remember before we run this, 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 and if we didn't make advantage, then we're going to pick our old day switch and now we play. No, now we should start thinking about it. Wherever. When you said
1: working more with players on attacking, switching, and understanding it, What is it that you find yourself having to teach players when it comes to playing against a switching team? And what I mean is, is it understanding mismatch and playing through a mismatch? Is it understanding when to slip versus screen or space? Like, what are the things that you find yourself teaching more when it comes to attacking switches?
0: Everything, believe me. (laughs) <laughs> I spent so much time because all the coaches had games, you know, while we played the perfect game, we played the perfect game and then they changed the switches and man, we couldn't beat our guy or man, we couldn't transfer the ball down and we lost the game. Okay, we didn't play well. We didn't play well. Switching is nowadays a big part of the game. It's not a shame anymore. 20 or 30 years ago, that only coaches that don't work enough and they switch because it's easier, you know. Now you didn't play well if you didn't attack switching well. So it's everything is different. It's controlling the matchups. Who has the bigger advantage? Are we having bigger advantage on the perimeter? Are we having the bigger advantage down there? Controlling the shot clock. Is there enough time to play through the big or we need to start playing immediately? Then it's not only mismatch in drive or low post. There is a mismatch in boxing out. There is a mismatch in closeout situation. We got to understand why they are switching. Probably we had good ball movement earlier and now they want to stop it. So we don't want to do what they want. We don't want to stop the ball moving. We got to have actions. We got to have organized actions. We got to have calls that help us move the ball, create closeouts, And just keep playing basketball the same way like they're playing some different coverage. It's a big part of the game. So it's teaching literally everything.
1: Coach, this has been great so far. We want to move to a segment that we call start, sub, or sit. We'll give you three options, ask you to start one of them, sub one of them, and then sit one of them. And then we will discuss your answers from there. So, Coach, if you're ready for this first question, we'll dive in. Let's go. Okay. This first question has to do with when we were in Vegas, you did make a comment that analytics weren't as big of a deal where your coach or in Serbia as maybe it is in the U.S. or in the NBA and that analytics is just not as much of a thing. And we thought that was really interesting. We discussed it a little bit. We want to kind of follow up with this question about that. And we want to ask you about maybe stats that do matter to you and what you do look at when it comes to a box score or analyzing your team and so start sub or sit these three different margins when it comes to stats and what's most important to you the start sub sit option one is the offensive rebounding margin in a game option two is the free throw attempt margin in the game and option three is the turnover margin
0: very interesting all those margins have big value Let's see the free throws, because I don't want to give a big value to the thing that is not only in my hands. We have a very important gentleman over there, you know, those three guys who are big part of the game, which are doing a very difficult job, so it's how many fouls did they call, you know, in the shooting action. So let's see the free throws, and I was joking a bit uh, about the referee game. We have the best referees around over here, and they are doing the great job. About the free throws, it's like you want to have your guys attack the paint. You want to go to the free throw line often, but also you want to have a lot of paint trees. You don't want to drive into crowd because then it comes to the turnover, and that's what I will sub. So you have guys that you want to foul, that you don't want to give up easy baskets. You want to foul them. You want to send them to free throw line. So now we sub turnover. For me, it's important who is making those turnovers. If those turnovers are unforced or not. If they are unforced, it drives me crazy. It's all about the concentration and the concentration comes from the huge motivation, you know, and everything. I often used to tell to my young guys, you know, why don't you drop your iPhone, you know, when you're in front of the gym? because you are motivated not to drop it. How it happened that you fumble on the ball and you lose the ball unforced, you know, it just can't happen, you know. You're not concentrated enough. Second turnover that drives me crazy is having the guys who are not the creators. That is not their job. Having more than one turnover. So let's say you have the three man who is very important part of your team. He's the energy guy. He's the main defender. He's the beast rebounding. He can shoot the ball. He can do everything, you know. He's just not a ball handler. He cannot have three turnovers in the game. And then it comes to your creators that have the ball most of the time in their hands and have all the decisions, you know, to create for themselves and for the others. If those turnovers come from their creation, I'm fine with that if they're improving, if they're working on their decisions every day, and if they're improving throughout the season, this is the game of mistakes and it will happen. So, of course, we want to take care of the ball. We want to limit the turnover like every team in the world. But for me, it's not that every turnover is the same. We can start the offensive rebound. I think it's huge for transition defense. And there are so many different approaches to playing your transition defense. And everything starts with offensive rebound. I've seen teams that don't send anyone to the glass. I've seen teams that send five to the glass. I've seen teams that have balance, like three men on the glass, two men behind, four men, one man behind, and everything works if they have one thing in common. And that is discipline and physicality. So it's a big thing. Whatever you do, you got to have a mentality that if one makes a mistake, we are all there. It's like in the submarine, having the discipline following the rules, being there, being physical, fighting for loose balls, giving your team second chance opportunities, maybe some easy putbacks, maybe some second possessions that will finish with a dagger three that will win the game. But the most important thing is the transition defense. I still think everything is important. Of course, three-point shooting is huge. Going to the free throw line is huge. Controlling the basketball, do not making turnovers, but scoring easy points, you know, in the game, if you are... Playing the even game against the even opponent, four or six easy points in the game, just, it's too big.
1: Coach, thanks for explaining all those. I'd actually like to follow up with the statement that you did make about analytics just not being as important. And maybe just going a little bit deeper on what you meant by that and why and what you maybe do look at when it comes to these things.
0: If you really analyze NBA playoffs, I'm not the best person to talk about it, but it's only my eye. You see it Teams winning games, you see the teams that have better two-point pull-up shooters win games because that is even game. There is high-intensity defense. You don't have open looks. You don't have corner trees. You don't have open corner trees. You don't have that many layups. You don't have that many good shots in a on points for possession. So you got to have players that are making the difference. Usually that difference comes from taking let's say, bad right? It's only the matter of perspective.
2: Looking at the turnover margin, you hit on it for sure, talking about just, you know, turnovers you live with unforced and that you have a young team. And with your defense, you talked about keeping it simple. So on the offensive end, when we kind of frame it with looking at preventing turnovers, keeping it simple, how do you think about offense
0: with a young team? That will happen. If you want to play aggressive defense, if you want to play an open court, if you want to run, those are the turnovers that will happen and that you have to learn living. So turnovers that come from playing fast, turnovers that come from not wanting to hold onto the ball, playing team basketball, moving the ball, you know, and doing everything quickly, it will happen. What I don't let happen is that we make turnovers because we play too slow, that we are playing with slow decisions That drives me crazy. If there is one thing in basketball that drives me crazy, it's slow decisions. So it can be a wrong decision. I'm good with the wrong decisions, but slow decisions are killing me. Killing me and killing our team the way we want to play. So if the turnover comes from the quick decision, that means that you still got to work on your decision making, but you are playing basketball the right way. If the turnover comes from making a slow decision, that is really, really bad.
1: We are always happy to work with companies, coaches, and creators who add value to coaches and the industry. So we're very excited to announce our newest partner and the official presenter of Start Sub or Sit, Just Play. Just Play is the premier platform for engaging your team and managing workflow within your organization. Just Play consolidates the platforms you use and integrates with industry leading video tools to help coaches win in four major areas teaching, opponent scouting, prospect recruiting and analytics we recently featured just play founder austin barone on our titan series so you can hear much more about him and the growth of the company there additionally just play will be adding pdfs and extra content you hear in this and future start Sick conversations so for more information and to see that extra content visit
2: justplaysolutions.com slash slapping glass today moving along we'd like to ask you about the Spanish pick and roll and defensive coverages that are hard to read when playing the Spanish pick and roll for your guards or your team in general. So start, sub or sit option one, the guard to guard switch against the Spanish pick and roll option two is when the defense will drop the big, make an emphasis for the big to get under the stack screen or option three is just a hard hedge and trying to blow it up at the ball.
0: I think that they are doing a really good job reading those, so I don't think that any of those is too difficult. Let's say hedge just because of the timing, because when the defense is hedging, you got to be there a little bit earlier because you need to slip in front of the pick. So I teach my guys to slip in front of the pick when the defense is hedging, the Spanish pick and roll, and it can be difficult. For me, the most difficult is when the guy defending the back screener, when he is physical and when he is not allowing our guard to come there early with the angle that we want. So if the defender on the back screener is physical, sometimes it's difficult to slip in front of the ball screen. So maybe we start with that. Then we will sub the guard guard switch. I don't think it's too difficult. We teach them, you know, whenever you're there, trying to set the back screen, whenever you see that he goes outside of the level of your shoulders, that means that probably he's ready for the guard-guard switch and you should disappear. Now you sleep behind the pick and now the guy who stays there, if he still wants to switch on the other guard, he has the big separation, or he runs with you now, the guard who is on ball, he's in a problem. That's the first way. The second way, if you were late to disappear, to sleep, Then we still want you to set the back screen, but you set it with the angle where we want the defensive big to fight the screen away from the ball. So that gives you the space to slip back to the basket. It gives you that edge of the backboard, unoccupied, where you can punish with a gargar pass. We start the drop just because it's very simple, you know, and we make it or miss it, you know. And sometimes before the game, when somebody asks me, okay, Coach, how are we doing? Are we good for the game? No, are we winning it? Sometimes I say, hey, go ask my guard, you know. <laughs> if he makes those shots, if he makes those decisions, we are good, you know. If he's not feeling well, we are in problem. But the value of Spanish pick for me is really good because it gives you a lot of opportunities. very good for punishing the switch. It's very good for stealing some easy points. If you are doing a good job disguising it, I think it's really important nowadays because everybody's practiced the defense against the Spanish speaking role. But if there is some kind of motion before that, you know, and then it comes with a speed, I think it's really difficult to defend. You got to be ready in your playbook to have different motion before that, to have different angles of the back screener coming from the help side, from the weak side, coming from the strong side. If you have problems with the defender being physical on him, which is even more, even better, you know, whatever you are running, you try to disguise, but sometimes there is no better decoy than a bad disguise. You want to disguise and you want to make it a little bit visible, so the assistant coaches from the opponent's bench stand up and start, you know, yelling, It's coming, it's coming, and then you do something different, you know. It's fun. In this job, there is a lot of pressure, you know, and a lot of bad moments. So you better use the fun ones, you know.
2: Coach, I'd like to follow up just on something you said there at the end. With knowing the stack screener angle, if he's coming from the strong side or the weak side, what changes or what angles are you working on depending on where that stack screener is running into the action?
0: It's about the angle of the back screen, but for me it's more about, look, we are playing in a very physical league. The guys are huge, they are physical, and they are using their physicality, and it blows up the spanish speaker role if you're guard is coming from the weak side and he wants to go there and be in time because it's all about the timing in Spanish speaker role. If you are too early, you blow up. If you are too late, you blow up. So you gotta be there right on time. And coming from the weak side sometimes having the guard just bumping him before he even enters the paint or before he comes to the middle line, you know, it blow up the timing and it, it blow up your Spanish speaker role. So maybe The other time you want him to come from the strong side, let's say from the strong side corner, so from the direction where the ball is coming. So it's a little bit easier maybe to go inside because now the defender will not be between the ball and you when you should set the back screen. You got to play with the angles, you got to read the game, and you got to have the playbook that is ready to answer to those questions. But for me, the timing is most important. Second, most important is don't let them know that you are playing spanish speaker role unless you want to punish the switch. So you want to put the guy down early and then you want to sleep it early. You want to sleep the foreman if he is good decision maker or you want to sleep the other guard. But on the foreman side, if the foreman is in the corner so they can fix the mismatch, they can't switch it out. But one more important thing. So we said it's about the timing and it's about disguising the spanish speaker role.
2: We're looking a lot at the stack screener, but how are you helping the ball handler? It can be a confusing action. There's a lot going on. Like you said, you need timing, you need patience. How are you working with the ball handler and the stack screen?
0: For me, it's a similar to working on a ghost screen. It's a similar timing. I start really simple. Let's work. Let's practice the timing that the ball handler is making a hazard, a simple hazard, like make a pound dribble, put the ball in your pocket, lift your knee up and make a little hop on your opposite foot. And then there is a back screen happening in the timing of a hezzy. And then I attack, and then you open, and we go. It's the same with the goal screen. You dribble, you hezzy, in the timing of a hezzy, the goal screen happens. So I can attack the slip, I can read the defense. I start like that, like connecting those two players together with a simple common idea. Okay, so our timing is hazard. It It won't happen later on. You know, they have the defender there. Sometimes they are coming full speed. Sometimes they need to, they have some handoff before the action. Sometimes, I don't know, they are coming off the, some off screen. So they have the ball in triple threat position. So it won't happen all the time that you are able to it. But that's how we start. Let's try to make a common timing. And then it becomes more familiar and much more easier to make the timing in in other options. Coach, you're
1: off the start, sub, or sit hot seat. Thanks for playing that game with us. Loved your answers there. Thanks. We've got one last question for you before we close the show. Before we do, once again, thank you for coming on. We really appreciate it, and this was a fun conversation.
0: I can always talk about basketball, and especially with you guys, that you have this amazing, amazing channel that helps the coaches worldwide, you know? So I'm really, really happy to be part of this. Oh, thank you, coach.
1: The last question we ask all our guests is, what's the best investment that you've made in your career as a coach?
0: It's a difficult question. We invest a lot. We devoted our lives to this job and we invested a lot. And it paid off to the to not that big number of coaches, you know, and we still need to keep the same love to the basketball every single day, but for me the biggest invest that I made is that I learned how to invest. I've learned how to invest. I learned the power and the value of a compound interest. That is the biggest thing I learned when I was at university. I studied a little bit economy and finances. I was a bad economy student, you no, know, but not that bad that I didn't learn the value of compound interest. You gotta invest every single day and small investments every single day, making a compound interest that is helping your life, that is helping your game, your job, anything you do. Everything good in life comes from the compound interest. That is what I talk about to my players every single day. We spoke about the closeout decisions earlier, right? We spoke about uh, making quick decisions versus making the slow decisions. If you work on your decisions every single day, And guys, I mean it every single day. It's not the figure of speech. My team, my players are working close-out decisions every single day. It cannot be 100 repetitions. It cannot be 500 repetitions. It can be 3 or 5 or 10. But every single day, and they're improving a lot. Because tomorrow, you are not working on your base value of decision. It's your base value plus 3 or 5 or how many you made. And the day after tomorrow, it's plus three or five. And the day after tomorrow is plus three or five. So they improve a lot and they should do everything every single day. You know, it sounds weird, but that's the way I do coaching. And that's the way I try to do in life. And that's my biggest investment.
1: All right, Pat, that was pretty high level. Yeah trying to keep up. Uh, (laughs) As we mentioned on the show, I mean, we had an opportunity to sit down with him and and like you mentioned, I mean, I think we were on a whiteboard with him and a couple of the coaches for two hours in Vegas. It was a pretty fun time. So we knew this was going to be a good conversation based off of our Vegas whiteboard session with him.
2: Yeah, I was looking forward to this conversation and I think what shone through his eye for the details, whether it's angles, fighting over ball screens, is really impressive and was fun to just pick his brain, on all these things. And I know we have so many notes, but just these little tidbits that he shared with us was pretty cool.
1: Yeah. And I think what we heard throughout is the details to back up the philosophy or why they do stuff was great throughout. So let's dive in right away. I'll kick it to you first on any takeaways from that first bucket.
2: When he kicked it off as to why he likes hedge and why he finds it simpler, Especially with young teams, and just giving them more rules and eliminating the gray. I wrote down, yeah, that he's found for like the more passive coverages with the drops. That usually a more experienced team is going to have more success with that. So again, connecting the details, the philosophy, and why he liked hedge for a young team, and and, you know, remind me a lot with our conversation with Wes Miller. Just if you can keep it simple, give them simple assignments, simple tasks, then they can execute at a higher level because it's less thinking. They're moving. They're quicker on their feet because there is less gray.
1: A similar note, I mean, he talked about starting with picking up full court, pressuring, even good guards hate it when you're pressuring full court and make it hard to get into your stuff. Then the hedging just flowed into that mentality where they just are going to make it hard on you to bring the ball up and then we're going to make it so that you're not just going to be comfortable in the pick and roll. And I loved the quote, a bad hedge is better than a bad drop. I believe was the quote so and as we'll probably get into the nuances of the two different ones and why there's so much more gray area in the drop I just enjoyed him basically breaking down why he preferred the hedge with the young team and then the rotations the tags you know you followed up with a good question just about the two-step hedge or one step or you know basically how they do it the one little detail I did like too was the big's going to be late to the screen they can't still try to hedge late that they have to change their coverage and either flatten it or you know whatever it is that they're going to do but just like a little teaching point within that where if you're going to be hedging but then you know teams do a lot of creative stuff to make that big late and so if you are going to be late you can't still try to hedge because obviously then you get split or put yourself in a world of trouble so really like that teaching point as well.
2: I like the teaching point he made with the no screen mentality for the guard on the ball. I like how he framed it: picking your fights, and that of course fight your size. And the first fight you want to choose is obviously your matchup because you have a better chance of winning. But you know, then a detail we discussed in Vegas: if you do have to, whether you're late or you know you just. You lose that battle with getting into your defender and having to fight through the big and attacking, you know, knowing their weak spots or the best chances for getting through is through that hip and attacking his hips. And again, the level of detail when he mentioned just getting the inside hand so you can jump the foot through and reconnecting. And then that kind of led into taking away the short roll. I mean, again, now it depends on, like he said, if the screener's slipping out or holding, but how he thinks about plugging the short roll. This is something we've seen a lot in Europe, especially with coach Asalo, who now at Paris, they do it exceptionally well. And I just like this strategy of getting your big out on the ball, prying that hedge, but not chasing the ball, rather protecting the short roll coverage. If they're going to attack that way, he said, obviously, if it's a hacking guard, you want to get back to the ball. Yeah. I do like teams that are taken away, plugging that short roll and his thoughts on why he'd go under or what did he say there? The backpedal into the roll, Right. That was really insightful conversation for myself and hearing his thoughts on that. In Vegas, we
1: were talking about this, the no screen mentality, to go back to that. We weren't just on the whiteboard anymore. We were actually imitating it in the middle of a ballroom. <laughs> yeah, That's our Vegas trip, reenacting hedge ball screen coverages. <laughs> we're a fun hang. Yeah. In Vegas. <laughs> <laughs> but that was, that was a good point. I think another thing that crept into the back half of that conversation that I loved and honestly was... Not a miss for me, but something we probably just could have went for another half hour was his thoughts on coaches don't spend enough time on attacking switches and how to teach all that stuff. And I just thought his couple of thoughts that he did give us there were really good about just understanding it. And it is true. I mean, so many more teams do switch and I liked his little tidbit too about how 15, 20 years ago, people make fun of you if you switched. And now it's, you know, how a lot of teams win games, obviously. And so some good points that he did throw in there on just why it's so important and that it's not an excuse to just say we lost because they were switching and we didn't have an answer. You got to have an answer now. And I think we've seen a lot of teams do some interesting things to attack it, but I think just working on it and understanding, like he said, why they're switching, who they're switching with and to play through it is super important. So I took that away in that first bucket as well.
2: The framework he shared on how he thinks about attacking, switching. I know you wrote it down, but yeah, just you know, understanding the matchup advantages you have, the clock as the time you have left to attack the switch. And then also understanding the mismatches that you may have in box-out or close-out situations. And then I liked his last thought too about usually teams switch to stop your ball movement. And so important to keep moving the ball even against the switch. And, you know, it goes back to his emphasis on quick decisions. I thought that was an excellent framework just to how you think about when determining how you want to, your pick and roll switch attack.
1: Yeah. Really good stuff there. Moving to start, sub, or sit. Let's start with the Spanish pick and roll. We discussed you and I for about 30, 40 minutes before this question. And we came up with like six different variations of this question. And we finally got to one because we wanted to ask him something about Spanish pick and roll. I'm happy where we ended, but it was quite a journey to that question.
2: Per usual, I think we go just way too detailed or specific and then we realize we're out of time and just, all right, let's just keep it broader. And then it always ends up being the better question compared to anything of this chicken scratch we had before. So <laughs> I am happy where we settled up and coach Barach gave an excellent answer as with everything in this conversation. I really enjoyed just, again, the angles or the considerations in terms of the timing of the stack screener and the importance it plays, whether it's coming from strong side or weak side. and What factors could or could not determine the ability of it to properly time or executed? What were your takeaways there? I think
1: that it was interesting. He said that all three of them were actually somewhat simple to him because they work on it so much as far as the reads. I think that from where I sit, all these things can be difficult for a college guard sometimes when you first put them in the stacker Spanish pick and roll action. It's just a lot of bodies to read. I think that's the thing. Like You do have to really work on it. And I've actually coached guards that prefer not to run it because it's just too much for them, especially ones that are maybe more scorers out of a pick and roll. And they just want to read the big and be able to understand if I can get downhill or not. And all of a sudden there's more bodies down there. So I think that it was good to hear him talk about the reads on those things. And I think what I really always like is hearing the screen versus slip from the back screen or from the shooter. and I'll kick it back to you because you asked a good follow-up about the angles and all that. But I think that's a big part of it is knowing when to screen and when to slip out. And that's something that can really make it more dynamic than just always trying to screen
2: or whatever it is. He did mention at the very end of the conversation when we asked about how he helps his guards. And to your point, yeah, it can be a lot and the value he placed on having a hesitation. But again, I liked how he kind of, in terms of simplifying it, having one hesitation for if we want to attack a ghost screen or if we're so like, the scanner screen and giving him a little bit more clarity so again it's not like a different solution for okay we're in this pick and really got to do this we're in this we're in a ghost and i think just over the years him working with younger teams i think it's really helped simplify his philosophy and give players tangible tasks that they can stick to and have success with and find success with so i like that skip step hesitation and the importance that it played in kind of these more complex or deceptive actions that rely heavily on timing
1: i feel like That was like a nice little nugget thrown at the end on the hesitation step timing with the ghost screen. I know we weren't talking ghost screens, but that was really good because like the ghost flare action guards with the ball asked, well, when should I go? And like that little hesitation step that he talked about, that's a nice teaching point that I took there at the end. Even though we were talking Spanish pick and roll, he threw something else out that I really liked. We could have kept going and going on Spanish pick and roll stuff because like I said, we came up with tons of different questions that maybe we should keep for someone else
2: yeah the questions we were trying to come up with was pre-action before the Spain and it yes serendipitous it worked out like that's I mean besides timing that's one of the more important factors for him in executing it so get lucky at times here but it was good to hear him too talk about just disguising it and the importance that he places on all that pre-action
1: yeah in our watching film prepping for this we both were noticing yeah they didn't often just come down and run a straight Spanish pick and roll. They were running flex action. They were guard-to-guard dribble handoffs. We talked a little off air. They did stuff where they were running two Spanish pick and rolls in a row, just back to back. And yeah, definitely interesting stuff. Our last one, the stats that matter one, the margins, it was just interesting going back to the conversation in Vegas and just mentioning that analytics just don't drive every decision You know where he's coached as much as maybe it does other places. And so... Just alternate points of view is always interesting to dive into. And it got to an interesting conversation, though, about his view on turnovers, which I took out, with, especially with young teams, and how and why teams turn it over was a big takeaway there for me.
2: Yeah, same here. I wrote down unforced turnovers are usually a lack of concentration that he finds is due to a lack of motivation. Your cell phone or their iPhones, you don't see them dropping that a whole lot, but then they'll drop a pass. Yeah, <laughs> so We'll <laughs> yeah. make that metaphor. I did enjoy the offensive rebounding conversation, and I wrote down another metaphor I like with transition defense and offensive rebounding. It's about discipline and physicality, and he said that if one of them does it wrong, that screws the whole team, and it's that submarine mentality. One thing wrong, we're all dead. I guess my takeaway, were a lot of good metaphors out of this conversation. <laughs> 100%.
1: I kind of mentioned a couple of my misses. I'll throw it back to you. Is there anything else that you maybe wanted to go deeper or could have gone deeper on?
2: Basically, I'm with you. I think that attacking switch, we cracked open a door there that would have needed another 30, 40 minutes on. Not a miss, just more of a time constraint issue. I think
1: within that conversation too, I'm sure he had some interesting thoughts on switching from the defensive side too. And we talked about attacking it, but I'm sure he saw a lot about how to switch to take the things away that obviously they're trying to do offensively.
2: I'm with you. I think with switching defenses, I think what's always so interesting is, one, how you switch, but then how you think about solving the mismatches that you're giving the offense. I'm sure you would have had great thoughts on that as well.
1: Pat, if there's nothing else, we can wrap this thing up. Sounds good. All right, well, we thank Coach Roch once again. Best of luck to him. And thank you, everybody, for listening. We'll see you next time.
2: Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Please make sure to visit slappingglass.com for more information on the free newsletter, Slapping Glass Plus, and much more. Have a great week coaching, and we'll see you next time on Slapping Glass.
1: Do we have a name yet for this thing? I have like slapping back or <laughs> slapping glass. Slapping glass. That's kind of funny. I like That's that.
2: Good. Well, let's roll. <laughs> slapping glass.